everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're happy to have Chuck Lane on the show. We'll be talking about his new book, The Day Freedom Died, The Colfax Massacre, The Supreme Court, and The Betrayal of Reconstruction. It's just come out from the Henry Holt Company in New York. I enjoyed talking to Chuck a lot, and I learned a lot from the book. I'm not a historian of Reconstruction or of the Civil War period, so it gave me an opportunity to delve into a topic that I don't know very much about. One of the things that particularly recommends the book is the way in which Chuck describes how the same historical event, in this case a riot or a massacre, depending on whom you talk to, which occurred in 1873, can be viewed by different historical actors. Chuck makes a pretty convincing case that it was a massacre. As I said, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope that you enjoy listening to the interview. Here it is. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Great. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're in D.C., is that correct? Yes, yes, I am. Uh, what's happening in D.C.? Uh, the clouds are gathering. It I may see. be one of our regular August thunderstorms. Yeah, we, we have those here as well. I used to live in D.C., but I have to say here in Iowa, they're dangerous. You can die. <laughs> I, I, I once, as a young man, I found myself driving across Iowa in one of those in the middle of the night, so I yeah. know what it's like. Yeah, well, let me just tell our listeners that we're talking to Chuck Lane today uh, about his new book, The Day Freedom Died, The Colfax Massacre, The Supreme Court, and The Betrayal of Reconstruction. And just to show my cards, I, I love the book. I, I really liked it. I think that you know, it's kind of a model for what professional historians should do. Um, that is, people who uh, are uh, paid to be historians in academia, because the, the, the book is extraordinarily well written, and the, the narrative is clean, and it's gripping, and it really is kind of a page turner. So if you have my congratulations on that. Why don't Thank you, you. Um, yeah, sure, my pleasure. Why don't you uh, begin by talking a little bit about yourself and where you grew up and how you became interested in the topic? Wow. Uh, well, you know, I grew up right here in the Washington area, and um, I uh, have always been sort of a social science generalist type person, which may be why I wound up in journalism, because mm -hmm. it's the only thing people like that can, can earn a, a living at. Uh, I didn't have the uh, stick-to-itiveness ever to get a Ph.D., but um, so I worked uh, in college. I went to Harvard undergrad, and I worked in college on a thesis that was about actually American history. Uh -huh. And um, so I've sort of always been fascinated by it, although for most of my journalistic career I was working abroad. And then uh, when I came back from all that, I, I eventually uh, wound up covering the Supreme Court for the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And... Um, the Supreme Court is really a fascinating beat for anybody who's interested in history because, of course, they always work off precedent, right? And behind each of these precedents, there is a case. And behind each of those cases, there's, as it turns out, very often a, a really interesting human drama. And mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of, in a, in a way, how I gravitated to this subject, uh, sort of stumbling across uh, a case called United States versus Crookshank mm -hmm. uh, and and probing what went on underneath the sort of very thin surface that was represented by the court's opinion in that case back mm -hmm. from 1876. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, once I got onto it, once I found out what the Colfax massacre really was all about, I, I sort of became obsessed with it and, and became determined to find out every conceivable thing I could about <laughs> it and put it into a book. Yeah. Well, uh, you, you, uh, I, I'm always very interested in how people pick topics. I remember at one point in my career, I was um, I had read a book called Son of the Morning Star, which is about the uh, Custer, um, the, ba the Battle of Little Bighorn. And I remember thinking, if I could just find a massacre like that, then I could write a book. And I looked and looked, and I couldn't really find one that hadn't been written about. But I have to say, I had never heard about the Colfax Massacre before. How, how did it, so you stumbled upon it? Yeah, stumbled is probably too strong. Well, well I, I explained this in the book a little bit, that um, I, I found myself reading, you know, the pages of the Atlantic Monthly one day a few years ago, and there was a really interesting piece about, by, by a journalist called Richard Rubin, who had visited the town of Colfax, Louisiana, and mm -hmm. he had stumbled upon these strange uh, historical markers and monuments in this tiny little town, which referred to something they called the Colfax Riot. Mm -hmm. And these old markers uh, depicted it as a sort of a defense of white supremacy during Reconstruction. And he dug a little bit into it, and, and, and it turned out that maybe that wasn't the whole story. 
Mm-hmm. And what I after I read that, I sort of put two and two together, and I realized this was the same case that Crookshank had been about. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I thought, wow, you know, this is a great story because it had the the tremendous drama of this confrontation between armed groups of blacks and whites at this really sort of plastic moment of American history when everything was kind of up for grabs. Mm -hmm. And that furthermore, it has this additional chapter of the Supreme Court getting involved. And I thought if you could somehow put that all together, uh, you would have a great story. And I really didn't know where it was going to lead me. It just struck me as an incredible tale, you know, and I, I didn't I, I wasn't. I ultimately come out with very strong views about the rights and wrongs of it, but at the beginning, I didn't see those so clearly. It was much more to me just the drama and the the idea of this sort of little miniature war in our own country that no one had mm-hmm. ever heard of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly hadn't heard of it, and I have to say that uh, I teach a class here at Iowa on popular history writing, and this is just precisely the kind of thing that I tell my students to look for. I mean, it has to have two real qualities. One, it has to have all of the things that good stories have, and and this one does. You know, it has violence, it has a very topical issue, and that is racism. It has courtroom drama. I mean, it has really everything you would want. But then you also have to be extraordinarily interested in it, and I guess, you know, hearing your background and and what you do now, I mean, all those things kind of come together. I just want to ask you, have you sold the movie rights yet? Because I was trying (laughs) to think, you know, who would be James Beckwith? Well, (laughs) Uh, James Beck, uh, we would love to sell the movie rights. I'm I'm glad you think there should be some. You know, you mentioned James Beckwith, who, of course, is sort of the hero of the book, and he's the prosecutor who tried to bring the white men to justice for killing all these black men at the Colfax Massacre. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this book didn't really come together as a book until I sort of discovered him Mm -hmm. and his role and his character, because... Maybe we're getting into your area because you teach this, but it seemed to me that if you were going to have a narrative, it wouldn't be enough to just sort of have it be a narrative about sort of random individuals. You had to have one figure, one character that people could really follow and sympathize with all the way through. And I and and I saw the case through his eyes, you mm-hmm. know, and I saw it the way he saw it, and I I really empathized with what he went through. This one person who is down there in New Orleans, surrounded by, uh, you know the Ku Klux Klan basically trying to do the right thing Mm -hmm. and ultimately being thwarted. Um, Mm -hmm. But he is the figure who really sort of unites the whole narrative Mm -hmm. from beginning to end. I was going to say, you do a terrific job sort of pulling him out and then uh, uh, setting him at the center of the story because you do have to have that narrative thread. You do have to follow somebody in the story. It can't just be one damn thing after another. And if I could just suggest a parallel, I mean, you know, James Beckwith is a little bit like you. I mean, this, <laughs> this case took over his life for a period of time. Yeah, and, he's not. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. And I was going to say, I hope that you do better than he did with it. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that you will. So why don't you, um, let's begin and we'll talk about the book a little bit. Uh, why don't you just set the scene for us? Um, what was uh, Colfax, Louisiana, or Louisiana in general, like after the Civil War? What was going on? Well, the book begins really with the inauguration of President Grant in 1873, March of 1873, mm-hmm. because I want to set up the broader issue the country was facing, that in the first Grant term, he had sort of defeated, at least temporarily, white supremacist uh, paramilitary groups in the South that mm-hmm. were attempting to overthrow uh black-supported Republican governments, and with them then all possibility of black rights in the South. Mm -hmm. And that was a battle that appeared to be won, at least temporarily, as 1873 opens. Mm -hmm. But down in Louisiana, there was kind of an unresolved issue going on, which was that the 1872 election was bitterly disputed. It had been essentially a fraud carried out by um, the uh, party down there that had the support of the Mm ex-Confederates. And no real results were reported. And so there was a dispute over every single office from governor of the state on down. Mm -hmm. And the federal government was trying somehow to uh, officiate. Well, in the middle of this, a dispute emerged in a place called Grant Parish, Mm -hmm. right there in the center of Louisiana. And its capital city, if you like, was really a hamlet called Colfax. Mm -hmm. And as the days wore on, uh, the tension increased in Colfax to the point where 
The Republicans, who of course at that time, being the party of Abraham Lincoln, had the support of blacks, um, decided that they, and, and they were right, they had won the offices, the sheriff and the judgeship and the other little offices there mm-hmm. in the parish, so they would occupy the courthouse of Colfax, which was a converted horse barn, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they did in late March, and in response to that, um, uh, sort of extremist white supremacists headed by ex-Confederate officers uh, organized a large um, group of heavily armed men to sort of counterattack, if mm-hmm. you like. Mm-hmm. The black men in the courthouse were armed, too, but with very, very uh, poor weapons and very little ammunition. And so when April 13th came along, that was Easter Sunday, and the white force... Uh, sort of issues an ultimatum to the black men to either uh, uh, surrender and give up their weapons or face an attack. Mm-hmm. The black men, seeing no choice, decided to uh, take their chances, and they were overwhelmed. They were defeated militarily, and after they were taken prisoner, uh, dozens of them were shot in cold blood that night. Mm-hmm. Um, the total death toll was something like, I would say, between 62 and 81, based mm-hmm. on my reading of the documents. But it was a sensation all over the country, this huge uh, episode of bloodshed in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And it posed a real challenge to Washington. What would the federal government do? Here was Ulysses S. Grant, reelected with the support of uh, blacks and of liberal Republicans, or uh, progressive, if you like, Republicans all over the country. Uh, what would his response to this be? Uh, the administration's response was basically to attempt to prosecute using uh, some new Reconstruction-era federal laws. Mm-hmm. And in the person of James Beckwith, the federal prosecution was launched. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was a, a, a modest success in that ultimately three people were convicted, but, uh, and we can talk more about this, the Supreme Court's role comes in when the Supreme Court overturns these convictions mm-hmm. and really kind of gives a green light to further uh, white supremacist violence in other parts of the South. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I see. Yeah, that's a good overview of the entire story. Um, tell us a little bit about, there are a couple of, char- you have some good characters here, and that's always great. Well, and, and I think one of the most amazing ones is a fellow named uh, Willie Calhoun. Maybe you can yes. say a few words about Willie Calhoun. Well, Colfax uh, was Willie Calhoun's invention. He was an unusual man. He, he was a unionist before the war. Uh, he was a white man who owned, or whose family owned, one of the largest plantations in the entire South, about 14,000 acres uh, in extent, and was populated by hundreds of slaves, about mm-hmm. 700 by the beginning of the Civil War. But Calhoun, for sort of reasons of his own quirky personality, became a, sort of a, a Republican after the war and attempted to support black suffrage. Mm-hmm. And he established, as a, as a member of the state legislature, he established Grant Parish as a new parish centered on his family's immense plantation and with the black workforce essentially as the electorate or yeah. as the majority of the electorate. I think we should pause for just a moment to, to note, as you do in the book, that he called it Grant Parish. That, yes, <laughs> after President Grant. Yeah. And that was the and the capital of Colfax was named after the vice president uh, in the Grant administration, yeah. the first Grant administration, Schuyler Colfax. Yeah. Sorry, the second Grant administration uh-huh. was it second or first? Anyway, his vice president. Yeah. And um, the uh, result of this was that Willie Calhoun, this sort of white man who had been uh, sort of injured uh, as a child and had a terrible disability and walked with a limp everywhere he went. Uh, became the leader of this overwhelming or this majority black parish, and he was utterly. He he also shared his home with a black woman and had a mixed mixed race child, and he was absolutely hated by all his neighbors who previously had just been jealous of his wealth and now uh, despised his political and. Uh, uh, moral principles as well. Yeah, no, exactly. No, he sounds like an absolutely fascinating character. I mean, maybe, maybe a biography of him. Um, just to suggest another topic. Yes. Uh, who were the people arrayed against Willie Calhoun? Who were some of his enemies? Well, the principal one in Grand Parish is a, a Confederate veteran called Christopher Columbus Nash. What a name. People have fantastic names. And actually, <laughs> my research shows that actually Christopher Columbus, for some reason, was a very popular name in the South. <laughs> that boys were given. 
And he was sort of a, a wanderer from Louisiana who had gone off, had volunteered for the Confederate Army and fought all over the North. He fought at Gettysburg and places like that, uh, and eventually was uh, rose to the rank of lieutenant and was captured by the Union and held in a horrible Union prison camp on Lake Erie for two, the last two years of the Civil War. And um, he suffered dysentery there and all the rest, and then came back down to Louisiana and kind of gravitated to Grant Parish, where he made friends with some of the larger landowners other than Willie Calhoun, who were still sort of angry over the loss of their slaves. And he became a sort of, you know, um, I don't want to say like a gunslinger, but he was, a, I suppose, the deputy, she was one of the deputy sheriffs uh, in Grant Parish, mm-hmm. and he uh, was kind of an enforcer for these white uh, supremacist types. Mm-hmm. And Christopher Columbus Nash committed, uh, as part of a larger group, a murder that was very important in sort of setting this whole process in motion, committed the murder of the previous Republican sheriff, a, a man called Delos White, who came from New York and had been very supportive of the black population. And after Nash killed him and got away with it, he became sort of a a hero to many whites mm-hmm. in Grant Parish, and eventually it's Christopher Columbus Nash who leads this posse on April 13th and leads the uh, forces into battle in the mm-hmm. clash that would eventually become the massacre. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a term that I learned in grade school. I, I grew up in Kansas, and I don't know why I learned this. Uh, I'm not an American historian, but the term carpetbagger. Uh, right. it's, we were all taught about carpetbaggers, and there hordes of uh, northern politicians and businessmen coming south and sort of taking things over. That that, that seems to be to be an inaccurate characterization of what happened. Maybe you could correct us here. Yes, the carpetbaggers <laughs> The carpetbaggers were thought to be the sort of northern adventurers who came down just to exploit the South. And the, uh, their, uh, their uh, com- counterparts, I guess you'd say, were the scallywags, the southerners, the quote-unquote native southerners who joined up with them. So somebody like Willie Calhoun, who was from the South, would mm-hmm. be considered a scallywag. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is to debunk those those notions, which are really, even though I think they've been debunked many times before by many other historians, um, they're still very persistent. The, the interesting thing about this uh, epithet of carpetbagger is that a lot of the people who came down south didn't come to get rich, actually, but uh, in the case of Delos White, the man from New York mm-hmm. I just uh, explained to you, they actually took tremendous risks to their personal fortune and mm-hmm. to their personal lives by going down and working in favor of, of blacks. Mm-hmm. Um, Delos White, yes, he, he planted crops in, in, in the South and, and all that, but it wasn't, he wasn't exploiting anyone. Um, he was just being a farmer, and a lot of these folks really, really believed in the promise of equality and freedom and the fine words of Abraham Lincoln and the rest. Mm-hmm. Furthermore, a lot of people who came from the North joined up with the, uh, you might say, the ex-Confederate or white mm-hmm. supremacist side. I found in my research this stunning fact that three of the men who were in the white posse that attacked the uh, black men at Colfax were actually Union Army veterans, mm-hmm. and that one of the defense lawyers for these guys when the trial took place was... Um, from Massachusetts, mm-hmm. um, but you never hear them called carpetbaggers because no. they were on the quote-unquote right side. Right. And so I think one of the things I'm trying to do with this book is explode a lot of these old stereotypes that still exist about Reconstruction and show that it was a much, much more uh, complicated process and that, in fact, a lot of what we have learned as history it reflects this sort of pro-South perspective of the um, historians uh, who dealt with it in, in, in sort of the immediate aftermath of Reconstruction in the first part of the 20th century. Their influence, 
the sort of pro-South historiography is still influential. No, I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I know that uh, seeing in your book or reading in your book about carpetbaggers uh, it was quite contrary to what I had learned again in grade school in Kansas, because this, this was in all of the textbooks back then that these Northerners descended on the South, and, and that was that, and abused the the, the, the Southern whites and uh, worked in the interest of the Southern blacks. But I, yeah, I, 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 I thought that was an absolutely fascinating part of the book. Um, one of the things you point out is that there was a kind of low-level warfare going on throughout the period uh, in Louisiana and other places down south. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. I mean, people were being killed all the time. Yes, it was a very violent time, and the <coughs> excuse me, the violence <coughs> was mostly directed though against blacks and white Republicans. Mm-hmm. Um, the the violence was not ran- it was it was not random. There's sort of an image of the Ku Klux Klan kind of going on a rampage and burning things, and but actually it was much more carefully targeted. I learned it was targeted at people who were leaders, people like Delos White, the sheriff, or people, black people particularly, who had voted or who had uh, you know uh, taken a small office in the local government. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a real, it was, it was kind of a, an insurgency, I would say, with a sort of a terroristic tactic to it, the sort of classic terrorist tactic of assassinating the local mm-hmm. representative of the central government. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, this uh, was fueled by tremendous, tremendously vitriolic propaganda mm-hmm. um, in local newspapers yeah, that, and that, on the search. Yeah, I was going to say, that, that, that was an amazing part of the book, is that actually re- reading reading these newspapers, because we have this notion that journalists should be somehow objective, and yeah, I'm sure right. you are, but the things that you cite in the book were uh, are truly eye-opening, because they are well, certain, the farthest thing from objective. Well, certainly in Louisiana, the press, uh, with the exception of one or two papers in New Orleans, was dominated by uh, ex-Confederates and white supremacists who didn't hesitate to uh, spread propaganda through the paper, and of course, we think today—I mean, newspapers are kind of old hat today—but back then, that was the internet. That mm-hmm. was the fastest and most efficient means of communication. It had a tremendous impact, and of course, would always be magnified by the rumor mill uh, mm-hmm. that existed in these rural communities. Mm-hmm. So, of, of course, the story was spread in Colfax that the black men who had uh, occupied the courthouse were not only doing that, but that they were threatening to rape all the white women. Mm -hmm. And they were not only threatening to rape all the white women, but to kill all the white men and horror of horrors, raise a new race of people. And Mm -hmm. this was really believed. Christopher Columbus Nash himself believed that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there was a kind of a drama and an almost an hysteria that gripped the rural white uh, Louisiana of the time. And in part, I think that's because of another fact that may surprise some readers, which is that in several large regions or areas of the South right after the Civil War, there were actual black majorities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Mississippi and South Carolina were black majority states. Uh, Louisiana was about 50-50, but outside of New Orleans, which back then was vast majority white, this, the rural areas of the state were something like two-thirds black, and certainly Mm -hmm. the Red River Valley, where all this action I'm describing took place, was overwhelmingly black, and Mm -hmm. the white people on that frontier thought of themselves as a threatened and embattled minority. Mm -hmm. I I hasten to add, their reports of black violence, and uh, they would often spread stories that the blacks were arming to revolt and everything, were were never true. Mm -hmm. Um, There's just no evidence of it, and the thing that was exceptional, actually, about Colfax is that it was the one time where black men actually did mount any resistance. It was mm-hmm. quite ineffectual and poorly planned and mm-hmm. was not offensive in the sense that once they had the courthouse, that's pretty much where they stayed. But even that sent a kind of panic through the uh, whites of, of the area that to this day is probably, for us, extremely difficult to to comprehend. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's exactly right. I I also think it's important to put the beliefs of these white supremacists in their kind of proper, more general context, and that is, at the time, uh, there were various serious-minded people at various serious institutions that were wondering about the possibility of blacks and whites living together. 
They yes. didn't know whether it was possible or not. It had never really been tried. Right. And, and so, you know, again, they could call on this uh, question and say, well, look, you know, if, you know, the intellectual leaders of our own country wonder about it, we actually have to conduct the experiment ourselves. Right. And, well, I, yeah, I, I think they, they believed very strongly that, and we're talking now about the whites of rural Louisiana, mm-hmm. that it was, it was it was almost to their minds, I think, sort of an outlandish idea, right, that black people would, you know, be allowed to vote or own property. It was almost as if they were being told that they're and, – and I realize how this may sound, but I think it's accurate. They were, it was as if they were being told, your cattle are going to vote. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And they re- reacted to that out of, I mean, a sort of a shock and revulsion to them. It was a disgusting idea. It wasn't just – I think I think one flaw with some people's view of Reconstruction is this was all kind of about economics and mm-hmm. who was going to control the labor force, and mm-hmm. that was all relevant and that was all part of it. But I think at a deeper level for these whites, there was profound disgust for black people, which mutated into hatred. I mean, this was real racism. I mean, there's just no other word for it. And um, so they, they, they were prepared really to fight uh, and if necessary, die to uh, resist that. Mm-hmm. And, and it was, it, they didn't do much dying themselves. They did more killing. But mm-hmm. it was an almost, um, it was like a, a wave of panic or hysteria that kind of gripped that region. And so, you know, you ask yourself the question, well, black men, not women, but black men got the vote after the war. There were a couple of alternatives. One is that the old uh, southern politicians could have, approached the blacks with a a kind of a program that met their interests or, you know, and attempted to win some of their votes. But that was tried in a very, very limited number of cases and instead was sort of treated as an inherently crazy idea, Mm -hmm. you know. Not that it was tried widely and then failed, and therefore they opted for this much more uh, destructive course, but rather just the idea in principle, was was corrupt, and mm-hmm. and that no uh, man of honor would engage in it. And I must say, I mean, this, the depth of this sentiment in, in central Louisiana and northern Louisiana at that time is is extraordinary, and it's um, it, it, it was perhaps impossible. Maybe we're getting ahead of the story, but as you think about how this might have had a different ending, I think it would have taken a tremendous amount of military force from the union from the central you know the federal government mm-hmm. to to suppress it yeah, no, I think you're exactly right about that. I know that there's a kind of similar and analogous case in my own field, which is Russian history, when the serfs were uh, liberated uh, at approximately the same time, and you know many Russians also felt that this was just something that was I can't remember the exact term you used, but it's right it's something inherently insane. It's just that this couldn't really be. That, that, yes. that, that the people who had passed the legislation had obviously never, you know, seen what had gone on, right. or, you know, in, in, the, in the regions in which the, this legislation was supposed to be enacted, or they wouldn't have done this because they'd see that it just, it just wasn't a possibility. Well, throughout the press and other public statements of Louisiana whites of the time, and I have some of this in my book, you frequently see them expressing the wish that if only Northerners understood, mm-hmm. if only mm-hmm. they could see what's going on down here, mm-hmm. they would change the policies of the Reconstruction Congress and of, of the Grant Administration. Mm-hmm. And there was actually a certain truth to that. I think there was a very, one of the reasons Reconstruction failed in the face of this intense resistance is that there was weak support in the North for um, a program of black enfranchisement mm-hmm. to begin with. Mm-hmm. It was a political necessity for the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Uh, there would be no Republican Party in the South without a large black constituency, mm-hmm. and so that gave a lot of Republican politicians a reason to vote for it. But the, the number of, of those who supported equality for blacks as a matter of principle, I would suspect, is rather less yeah not zero mm-hmm. and not even necessarily a small minority but probably a minority of the republicans of that time and so when this pushback comes from the south and the south starts to impose a very heavy cost in kind of chaos and blood and disorder people start to realize it might take another civil war mm-hmm. to secure the rights of black people i think there were, were a lot of people in the north who said it's not worth it mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. No, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think you've hit it spot on. Um, let's move forward a little bit to the uh, attack itself. We talked about a little bit already, but um, uh, set the scene, if you would, again, and tell us uh, a little bit about the engagement at Colfax. Well, as I said, you had about 150 men with, uh, I would say, shotgun, almost all of them sort of hunting rifles or shotguns and a couple of rounds each of ammunition hunkered down in this uh, courthouse, and they had dug a kind of a shallow trench. It was a, a, a poor substitute for a real military trench, but they had kind of dug a crescent-shaped trench of about mm-hmm. two feet deep in front of the courthouse to kind of you know, protect or fortify their position. And then arrayed against them is a mounted force of about 125 uh, white men. And the whites were, each of them had at least two firearms. Mm-hmm. Most had uh, knives as well for close combat. Mm-hmm. They were uh, led by six men, uh, most of whom were former company commanders in the Confederate Army. Mm-hmm. The, and I was able to, through census records and other things, trace pretty well the membership of this force. And the majority of the foot soldiers, if you like, had also seen combat in the Confederate Army. So mm-hmm. they, they knew what they were doing. Yeah, that's exactly the phrase that came to my mind. They did know what and, they were doing. And basically, they proceeded, uh, they had a small cannon that they had commandeered. And they, they exchanged some shots from a long distance with the black men in the courthouse. And then they hit upon this idea that if they they moved behind, there was sort of a levee that ran along the Red River that was there, that if you went over sort of to the other side of it, to the space between the levee and the water, you could you could creep up next to the Black's Trench without being seen, and then there was a spot where they could sort of pop up and, and fire the cannon at them from a short range. And so they did that. They sent a party out to kind of outflank the Black men and start shooting the cannon on at them from from in effect from behind their own line. Mm-hmm. And when that first cannon shot came in, it hit someone, uh, one of the black men in the abdomen mm-hmm. and literally cut his abdomen open and his entrails sort of spilled out right mm-hmm. in front of it, in front of all the other people. And this sent huge, uh, and suddenly all the black men realized they'd been outflanked and there was this terrible weapon trained on them. Yeah. And, they broke and ran, and at that point, the whites surged forward and uh, began sort of shooting these fleeing these men as they fled. Uh, after that sort of phase ended, and a lot of black men had been killed in, in effect while they were trying to run away, they uh, about sixty or seventy black men remained uh, huddled inside the courthouse, mm-hmm. this former stable, which had pretty thick brick walls and not too many windows, and it was sort of a secure strong point. And um, again, there were a few shots exchanged while that was going on. And then the whites decided, well, we have to reduce this position. And it, it, it's, it was something James Beckwith said in one of, the, one of his uh, pieces of congressional testimony that I re- found in my research. He said, you know, at that point, the whites had won. Mm-hmm. If they had wanted the courthouse, they could have simply laid siege to it and starve these men out. Mm-hmm. They had no food, they had no water, and then they would have had their courthouse back with all the documents inside undamaged, but they didn't do that. Mm-hmm. Instead, they want, they decided to set fire to it, and mm-hmm. this is where it becomes a, a truly horrific scene. They had a captured black uh, man, a former slave from Colfax, and they forced him to take a torch up to the building mm-hmm. and light the roof on fire. Mm-hmm. And it was made out of uh, dried up uh, cypress shingles and began to burn very quickly. And soon this crowd of about 60 men inside realized they were going to be burned alive in there. There mm-hmm. was this fire falling in on them, smoke everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so they decided they had no choice. They would surrender. They waved a white sleeve of someone's shirt out the window. And the whites promised that if they put their weapons down and came out, they wouldn't be harmed. Mm-hmm. So they did, and mm-hmm. as soon as they began to come out of the building, whites opened fire on them mm-hmm. and started to kill more. Mm-hmm. Once again, the black men had no choice but to run, and many of them were killed and many of them were taken prisoner. Mm-hmm. About a half a dozen of them hid under the um, floorboards of the mm-hmm. building, 
where one of them actually ended up being burned alive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That night, that night, the um, whites argued about what to do with their 30-some prisoners. Uh And actually, Christopher Columbus Nash, who had himself been a prisoner of war, uh, thought, no, uh, let's just give these guys a warning and send them back home. Yeah, I thought that was particularly interesting, that he, you know, being one of the more experienced people, uh, said, look, we're done here now. Yeah, uh, but I, his I, men did not listen. Right. The the people who came up to take over the prisoners later on that night were headed by a man called Bill Crookshank, and this mm-hmm. is where the case United States versus Crookshank comes from. Mm-hmm. Bill Crookshank was a big landowner. Um, he claimed to be the second biggest after Willie Calhoun. He had been raised not too far from where I am right now on the eastern shore of Maryland, mm-hmm. and had been sort of part of a group of people who lived in an area. Uh, around his farm who were sort of notorious for clan-like activity. And Crookshank and his friends uh, uh, decided that they were going to take revenge on these prisoners. Now, one of the reasons for that is that a man called Jim Hadnot, who was a very prominent white uh, man in the community and was there, he claimed to be the the, uh, white supremacist, duly elected state representative, he had been shot and mortally wounded in the previous mm-hmm. action during the day. I discovered through my research that this actually had happened because he was shot in the crossfire by his own men. Mm-hmm. But the whites were angry, claiming that um, the blacks had fired on him treacherously while they ra- had been waving this little white flag. It mm-hmm. wasn't true. But they decided um, to take revenge for Hadnot's uh, shooting, and uh, they marched these men out, these black men out, uh, in the dark, in pairs, uh, followed by pairs of white men. Mm-hmm. And as uh, they reached a certain point, they began shooting them each in the back of the head. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons we know this happened in the way it happened is that a couple of men actually survived. They, mm-hmm. Some of them were were shot several times. There was one man called Benjamin Brim who was shot in the face and twice in the back mm-hmm. who still survived and testified at the trial mm-hmm. later on. And their testimony is just so dramatic to read it, and I tried to, um, you know, draw as much detail as I could about the events from their testimony. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, when it was all over, you had uh, a couple days later federal marshals arriving on this horrible scene, a field full of dead bodies, some of them in, in these sort of extraordinary poses. One uh, man had died with his hands clasped together as if he were begging uh, for his life. Some of the bodies were charred. Some of them were um, um, had been beaten uh, mm-hmm. almost to beyond recognition. It was a shocking, shocking uh, scene. It, it depicted uh, a kind of savagery and sadism that was really disturbing to the white officials from the north who saw it. And I think that's part of why it at least initially became such a a sensation mm-hmm. uh, in the northern press. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the um, legal part of the story. And yeah. uh, now, it's, is Beckwith the U.S. attorney in New Orleans? Is that is yes? That, is they, they use the nomenclature then of U.S. district attorney, but mm-hmm. basically he was the U.S. attorney. And it's interesting, uh, you know, today we think of the United States attorney in a big city like New Orleans as just the head of a huge office with mm-hmm. all kinds of lawyers. James Beckwith was the United States attorney, and that was pretty much it. <laughs> he had a part-time lawyer assistant and a secretary and his wife to help him, and that's it. Uh-huh. And uh, nevertheless, he was supposed to uh, find out what had happened, indict the people responsible, and try them in front of a jury in New Orleans. And it mm-hmm. was a monumental job. Uh, the first tough part was just to investigate this crime. Mm-hmm. And his problem was, of course, that the witnesses were black. Now, why is that a problem? Well, in the South, in states like Louisiana, black people had never been allowed to give testimony uh, uh, in any kind of a court case, let Mm -hmm. alone a murder case against whites. Mm -hmm. So he recruited uh, a Secret Service agent. In those days, the Secret Service was pretty much the only federal investigative force and even though it had started out as an anti-counterfeiting arm of the Treasury, it had been used by the Grant administration against the Klan in other parts of the South to infiltrate the Klan and find out you know, who the leaders were and that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. knowing that, Beckwith recruited a Secret Service detective who was sent up to Colfax in the Red River Valley 
and spent quite a while uh, undercover among the whites there who spoke quite openly to him about what they had done and why they had done it and how proud they were. And he came back to New Orleans and reported it all to Beckwith, who quickly had a list now of about 100 people who were involved. Mm -hmm. So he put the Secret Service agent's report together with his eyewitness accounts from the black victims and got indictments of about 98 people. Mm -hmm. uh, the next part, of course, was making the arrests, and that was extremely difficult because the um, Attorney General of the U.S. at that time had promised to let him use the Army to do this, mm -hmm. but he kind of reneged on that promise, and, and so Beckwith had to rely on the state militia, which was a much weaker uh, force. But mm -hmm. he did manage to arrest, all told, about nine people, and they went on trial in um, New Orleans in the federal court there in uh, the beginning in February of 1874. Mm -hmm. And what happened at that trial? Well, as you can imagine, the white supremacist party of uh, Louisiana took it as an opportunity for a great sort of um, uh, propaganda show about the, the uh, depredations of uh, the Negro all over Louisiana. Mm -hmm. Instead of uh, you know, claiming none of this had ever happened. They they claimed it had happened, but they blamed it on the on the Republican government, and they blamed it on the blacks who had uh, you know gotten too big for their britches. Mm -hmm. And so you had this extraordinary spectacle of Beckwith laying out uh, through the testimony of these very humble former slaves this horrible uh, situation, followed by the defense case, which consists of dozens of people who essentially perjured themselves claiming all sorts of things that didn't happen had happened mm -hmm. but it but it was all pitched to a jury of nine whites and three um, what were, were called uh, free men of color from uh, New Orleans mm -hmm. people of mixed race and when the first trial was over nine whites had voted to acquit <laughs> and the three free men of color mm -hmm. had voted to convict so mm -hmm. this hung jury gave way to a second trial, which began in May. And at that trial, uh, Beckwith did secure three convictions, but not of the capital charge, rather on a, a lesser charge of conspiracy. Mm -hmm. He was very disappointed, very angry, and very self-critical about that. My judgment in the book is that this was actually a remarkable, it wasn't great, of course, or perfect, but it was a remarkable uh, uh, degree of, of accountability in a situation like this, because I doubt that ever before in Louisiana had any white men ever been convicted of anything mm -hmm. on the testimony of blacks. Mm -hmm. um, of course, uh, the, these convictions were then overturned by Justice Joseph P. Bradley, who mm -hmm. was a member of the Supreme Court, doing what they did in those days, which was to ride circuit. Yeah, uh, I, I found this very interesting. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this, because I, well, I, I knew nothing about this. They, they, they would sit on trial. The, the federal courts consisted of not very many courts back then, and so the Supreme Court justices had to lend a hand. And uh, he sat uh, on a two-man bench with the uh, judge for the Fifth Circuit, a man from Ohio called William Woods, and uh, at the end of the trial, cutting a long story short, Woods uh, rejected the defense motion to overturn the conviction. But Justice Bradley, who was originally from New Jersey, um, in a very long constitutional opinion, took the view that the federal government did not have the power to um, prosecute these, this kind of a case, that mm -hmm. murder and those kinds of crimes couldn't be reframed as federal civil rights violations, mm -hmm. but rather had to be... Um, prosecuted only by state authorities, so he would have thrown out the conviction. Their difference of opinion forced the matter into the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. but the court, the Supreme Court, would not rule for another two years, and in the meantime, the kind of lack of clear law, the kind of doubt that hung over the federal government's authority, uh, gave a kind of green light to other white paramilitary groups in Louisiana Mississippi, mm -hmm. um, and Mississippi, and in effect, enabled them to attack all across the South. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I think uh, you might ask, well, why didn't the state of Louisiana um, prosecute these guys? Yes, I, I was going to ask that, in fact. <laughs> well, it's explained in my book, Marshall. Uh, <laughs> it, interestingly enough, a, a plucky state uh, prosecutor, one of the few 
people in the Red River Valley who thought thought there was something wrong with all this killing uh, attempted to bring charges, and he was uh, soon thereafter surrounded by a mob of uh, gun-toting and knife-wielding men, most of whom were involved in the massacre itself, mm-hmm. and they essentially chased him out of town. Uh-huh. So there was a kind of anarchy in the countryside of Louisiana that basically made it impossible for the state to do anything. If there was going to be any justice in this case, it would require federal uh, muscle to make it happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, why don't you give us a little background on the, I guess the crucial amendment here is the 14th Amendment. If you yes. could just say a few words about the 14th Amendment. 14th and 15th, really. The 14th Amendment, of course, is the one that um, provided for um, citizenship for the former slaves, mm-hmm. made them United States citizens and guaranteed them, among other things, due process of law, equal protection of the laws, and something called the privileges or immunities of United States citizens, which were pretty poorly defined Mm -hmm. at that time. And then, of course, there was the 15th Amendment, which uh, granted black men the right to vote on the same terms as whites. That is to say, it didn't guarantee them the right to vote no matter what. It simply said that uh, if if white men could vote if they paid a poll tax and had a $300 minimum property, then any black men with those same attributes mm-hmm. would get to vote, too. Mm-hmm. And those with those amendments, the 14th and 15th Amendment, in mind, Congress, then controlled by Republicans, passed a law called the Enforcement Act, mm-hmm. which made it a federal crime for anyone to conspire to violate those rights. Mm-hmm. And it was that act which uh, Beckwith, uh, under which Beckwith prosecuted these defendants in the uh, Colfax massacre. Mm-hmm. And, was, and that was the act that Bradley said was unconstitutional? Is that right? Yes. Well, he, he said a number of things about it. One of, he, he declared a portion of it unconstitutional, but he also had a very sort of... Um, I, I was hyper-technical reading of Beckwith's indictment because he claimed that you couldn't make out a federal case unless you could also prove that the attack had been done with a racist intent, mm-hmm. that race had been the motive. And, mm-hmm. of course, Beckwith's indict, uh, indictment pointed out that the uh, victims were all black and that the attackers were all white, mm-hmm. but since it didn't expressly say they were attacked because they were black... Mm-hmm then, according to Bradley, that was no good. And um, I, I, that's, it's a baffling uh, position for him to take, but to give Bradley his due, what he thought he was doing was establishing a kind of a compromise, mm-hmm. because in the mind of that time, the constitutional lawyer's mind of that time, he, he thought, thought there was, he was faced with two uh, uh, propositions. One, that we would just leave everything up to the states, uh, or that the federal government would suddenly become this government that could uh, police everything that went on inside the states, mm-hmm. you know, could become a, uh, that Washington would suddenly be in charge of every murder case. That's mm-hmm. how he saw it. And so he felt that if you could just say, well, yes, ordinarily the states are in charge, but it would have to be a, a case of alleged racism before there would be federal authority, that would be a good compromise. Well, of course, as Beckwith and others in his position realized you could never make that showing mm-hmm. um, in, in a case like Colfax because how could you show that it was racism and only racism mm-hmm. that motivated these whites? Where would the testimony come from to uh, uh, prove their motives beyond a reasonable doubt and, and, and prove that they weren't also interested in, say, politics or elections or economics or something else? And so he understood this for what it was, which was a, a holding that would would leave this law on the books, uh, but essentially make it impossible to enforce in the real world. Mm-hmm. And that is indeed what happened. Mm-hmm. I see. So let's uh, go forward then to um, what set you off on the book, and that is the United States versus its uh, Cruikshank, right? Right. Yes. In the Supreme Court. In the Supreme well, Court. I have to say one of the most exciting moments in my research came when I found a transcript of the oral argument for this case in the Supreme Court, uh, in an old edition of the Baltimore Sun. Uh-huh. Um, and it was great because it had a number of sort of very vivid quotations and observations, and it really enabled me to sort of recreate the scene in the court. Um, the oral arguments took place in March of 1875, just after, uh, it's important to note, the Democrats, i.e. the party of the South at mm-hmm. that time, 
had retaken control of the House of Representatives. And mm -hmm. so the atmosphere in Washington was very, very different that these uh, justices were working in. And um, the uh, arguments pitted the attorney general of that time, George Williams, against uh, a lawyer called Reverdy Johnson, who Reverdy Johnson was a former senator from Maryland. He had been attorney general in the Zachary Taylor administration. Mm -hmm. And he was uh, the defense lawyer of uh, Lincoln's assassins <laughs> and the defense lawyer for the Klansmen in mm -hmm. the um, Ku Klux Klan trials in South Carolina in 1871 mm -hmm. and 72. He was an extraordinary figure. He was, oh, he was also the lawyer for Dred Scott's master. Wow. Uh, so Reverdy Johnson was an, an, an absolute veteran of these high-profile racial constitutional cases and had been in the Supreme Court many, many times. He was the go-to guy. If you yes, <laughs> yes, and he stood up. If you can think about it, it's, 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 it really says something about this case and how important it was viewed by that side of the argument. They really thought they had a chance in this case to end federal law enforcement authority in the South, and uh -huh. so they called on their, the, you know, Reverdy Johnson. Yeah, the big guns. Yes. Yeah. Now, George Williams, the attorney general, was a different kind of a guy. He had he he had a lot of ability, but he was a bit of a waverer, if that's a word. He was a bit equivocal about uh, enforcing these laws in the South. He he had withheld resources from Beckwith because he didn't want to have too much of a provocation to violence. He had this sort of strange view that if you showed a little leniency to the Southern whites, then they would behave better. Mm -hmm. And and yet, I think my, my reading of, of him is that he's actually quite sincere in his support for the 14th and 15th Amendments. And um, he sort of did his best up against Reverdy Johnson. But as this long argument, which went on over two days and many hours, um, quite unlike today, uh, as it proceeded, it became increasingly clear that Williams was going to lose. Mm -hmm. um, they, the court was asking him sort of hostile questions mm -hmm. and uh Justice Bradley uh, was jumping in to kind of um, help the other side and that mm -hmm. sort of thing. And so, sure enough, the the court ruled um, almost a year later, by the way, mm -hmm. that they took their time with this case, nine to nothing, that the indictment was flawed and the um, conviction should be overturned. It did not actually um, declare the whole Enforcement Act unconstitutional, but it essentially followed this line of Bradley's, which was to sort of redefine its scope so narrowly, this requirement of proof of racial intent, mm -hmm. that it rendered the law nearly unenforceable. And that was recognized at the time, as I found from reading the sort of reaction to the decision in the press. Mm -hmm. um, it was considered in its day... Um, a huge victory for, um, quote-unquote, the Southern people, which mm -hmm. was the way the uh, Southern whites referred to themselves, by taking sort of this federal boot off their necks, mm -hmm. this threat of um, being thrown into jail for killing black people. And it was, um, I think, an important sort of, it wasn't the end of Reconstruction all by itself, but or even the establishment of Jim Crow all by itself, but it was an important sort of brick in the wall mm -hmm. that was going to be built uh, mm -hmm. over the, the uh, following years. Well, it certainly is an important kind of bulwark of this more general doctrine of states' rights, which yes. the racists themselves started to use. I don't know if they started to use it. Maybe they continued to use it, but uh, they would constantly refer to it in, in court cases, and uh, you know, it was kind of the banner under which yes. they... They, I guess you would say, uh, mounted their defense of, of what's really white supremacy. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about, I mean, it, to, to modern ears, the decision sounds extraordinarily odd. Uh, what happened to um, the United States versus Cruikshank in the sort of following decades? Where, well, does it, where does it stand today? Well, it was in the following decades, it was sort of built upon by um, other cases in which the uh, the court at that time limited federal authority in mm -hmm. the South, um, and particularly later on when the, they voided the Civil Rights Act, which had guaranteed uh, equal accommodations mm -hmm. in hotels and trains mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. But uh, Crookshank kind of laid dormant uh, until um, much later when the uh, Supreme Court in the 90s and early part of 
the uh, first decade of this century, began to revisit a number of cases about what they call sort of federalism or states' rights. Mm-hmm. And um, the case in which Cruikshank uh, sort of reemerged most prominently was a case called United States versus Morrison. To summarize that one as succinctly as I can, it was a case about whether or not uh, Congress had the power to make um, gender crime, gender-motivated crimes like rape mm-hmm. uh, uh, actionable in federal courts. So mm-hmm. that if a woman were raped, or a man, I guess, for that matter, mm-hmm. um, and the state didn't provide a remedy, you could go to federal court and sue. Mm-hmm. And by a vote of five to four, the court said, no, that's a violation of or the, the, the 14th Amendment, excuse me, does not give the Congress that power. Mm-hmm. And uh, interestingly, one of the cases it cited in support of that proposition was <laughs> United States versus Crookshank. <laughs> yeah. And so it, it's sort of, I, I don't want to pretend that it's somehow the most important case that's ever been decided, but it, does, it that echo sort of showed me how these, um, how the law, how our law um, grows, uh-huh. and how it grows out of very concrete historical um, experiences, which are completely forgotten, uh-huh. but that but that the power of that precedent remains uh-huh. and can be you know used in an, for another purpose in a much different case many years later. And I, I I guess one thing I had in mind when I wrote this book, maybe I was aiming a little too high here, was that I wanted to make it impossible to ever cite Crookshank again, <laughs> or at least or at least you know with a with a, without a little bit of embarrassment uh-huh. because it's such an ugly case. Uh-huh. And it grows out of such ugly circumstances. Uh-huh, uh-huh. How did um, the federal authorities in the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s uh, begin to abridge? This is a bit of field, but I'm just interested. How did yeah. they begin to abridge uh, the general spirit of Crookshank and intervene in the southern states? Well, that's a really good question, which I I struggled with, and I you know I even talked to a number of experts about it, and it's. When you really get down to the nitty-gritty, it's hard to explain. But one part of the explanation is that um, the court began to find um, authority for federal action in other pieces of the 14th Amendment, such uh-huh. as the Process Clause or the Equal Protection Clause, uh-huh. uh, on the one hand. And on the other hand, um, the Commerce Clause came to be part of the um, uh, rationale for federal authority. So, for example, um, the civil rights cases written by Joseph Bradley in 1883 had held that under the 14th Amendment, Congress had no power to require equal accommodations mm-hmm. in hotels and transportation mm-hmm. theaters, that sort of thing. Uh, but he left open the question of interstate commerce, which, mm-hmm. of course, Congress can regulate. So the Supreme Court in the 60s upholds equal accommodations laws on the grounds that Congress has the authority to regulate interstate commerce Mm -hmm. and that a hotel uh, or an interstate bus line or a train like that is part of interstate commerce. Mm -hmm. But the cases, the case law from Reconstruction is sort of stubbornly unreversed. It's still there. Mm -hmm. And its status is a little bit uh, murky. Um, the court doesn't like to overturn cases. Um, they're not supposed to do that. Yeah. But I think if people really went back and looked at the, this period closely, they would generally agree that it's, this is actually one of the court's um, more embarrassing or mm-hmm. scandalous periods in which it, it really worked against the cause of of the freedom of, of the sla- of the ex-slaves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you make a convincing case of that. Uh, you really do, and I want to congratulate you on that. I, I find the uh, use of various parts of things like the 14th Amendment by different uh, lawyers and judges um, impressive. I don't exactly have how to put this without being insulting, but there's a lot of clever... Yes, uh, a lot of wordsmithery there. <laughs> well, you know, in, in my book, one of the things I learned doing the book was that these instruments are inherently open to interpretation. Uh-huh. They may look clear on their face, but an intelligent lawyer, someone like Joseph Bradley, was actually a brilliant lawyer, can find meanings in them. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk about judicial activism. One of the things that struck me about U.S. versus Crookshank 
at least the opinion of Bradley as the circuit judge, was how activist it was. Uh-huh. There was no real case law on this question. Uh-huh. There were no precedents. Mm-hmm. But he had the recent example that Congress had both had adopted, the same Congress that adopted the 14th and 15th Amendments adopted the Enforcement Act. Mm-hmm. So that would you would think would be an expression of congressional intent. Mm-hmm. But here comes this judge and says, no, 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 they mean something different. Mm-hmm. And it seemed to me that he was really imposing his mm-hmm. will over that of the, of the legislature, which is a pretty good definition of activism. Mm-hmm. But if you'll permit me, I'd like to explain a little bit about what I think Bradley and some of the others were up to. Oh, here. absolutely. Go ahead. There's a kind of trajectory, you know, that begins in 18... The 1850s was sort of the failure of the Missouri Compromise and the, the, the sort of the road to war, and ends at 1877 with the Compromise of 1877, in which the North essentially, the Republican Party, that is, in exchange for the presidency, then disputed in the election of 1876-77, in return for sort of, quote-unquote, home rule by Southern whites in the South. Mm-hmm. And if you look at it, really... In 1877, we sort of returned most of the way to where we had been under the Compromise of 1850. Mm-hmm. You know, that the South in 1850 had been under the belief that their social system, as they called it, was theirs to regulate under the doctrine of states' rights mm-hmm. in 1850. Then that kind of eroded, and we had a war over it. And then over there on the other side of the war, it's kind of restored. Mm-hmm. And the North marches out of the South and leaves under the doctrine of states' rights, leaves the control of the black population of the South once again in the mm-hmm. hands of Southern whites. Mm-hmm. And you ask yourself, my God, how could they have done that? What were they thinking? And I think part of what they were thinking is they just didn't want another civil war, mm-hmm. that, that they were tired of it, that they didn't think it was worth it, that hundreds of thousands of men had been killed, and there were cripples walking around the street mm-hmm. every day. And that the that there was a real disjunction in their minds between union and um, equal equality mm-hmm. for all people, right? Mm-hmm. That had been one of the banners of the war, but not the first banner of the war. Mm-hmm. Joseph Bradley is a very interesting case because, as a man in New Jersey, lawyer in New Jersey in 1860, he was f- involved in these frenzied negotiations to sort of hold the union together, in which he was willing to concede the right in perpetuity, to guarantee that slavery would go on in the southern states. Mm-hmm. In 1862, he ran for Congress on a, uh, a platform, though he was a Republican, that opposed the Emancipation Proclamation. Mm-hmm. He declared openly that this was a war for union, mm-hmm. and that was it. And I think what, what he had in mind in the late 1870s was, let's go back to that compromise in a different form, but that's what had always worked. You know, mm-hmm. We left the South alone, we left the, quote-unquote, we left the Negroes alone, and the whites of the South took care of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if we can restore that, we'll have peace. Yeah, you, you bring up a very good point, uh, actually, and it's something that I learned uh, a long time after I went to grade school in Kansas, and that is, and it, it, it reminds me again of this, uh, the, the intrusion of, I guess, Southern historiography into the more sort of more general mindset, and that is we, we were taught that the war between the states, that, that's an interesting sort of way to put it. Right. Was, was really about union and states' rights. Right. That it was a that Lincoln. You know, I've learned this is wrong, and, and that, that Lincoln was primarily concerned with the union, and 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 that slavery, you know, was a very secondary consideration. And that, that's not true. <laughs> well, it, it's also not true in the sense that slavery, states' rights, had always been connected with the preservation of slavery. Yeah, that no, that's right. The whole compromise that was embodied in the Constitution itself was yeah. to some extent made so that mm-hmm. the slaveholding states would be assured of autonomy to deal with slaves as property without interference from outside, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. No, that's and that, um, after the, th- those two concepts, uh, s- slavery and states' rights, cannot be separated. Mm-hmm. And I think... I think part of one of the reasons that there was such panic, as we were talking about earlier, among the whites of a place like the Red River Valley in Louisiana, was that suddenly they saw that not only was the federal government, quote-unquote, against them, Mm -hmm. but the state government was against them. So where would they go to protect themselves Mm -hmm. from the threat they saw embodied Mm -hmm. in in black people? Mm -hmm. And and this whole concept of state autonomy to deal with... uh, the slave population to deal with blacks after emancipation 
is closely linked with their sense of fear of insurrection, mm-hmm. their fear of slave revolts, and all the rest. Mm-hmm. And so after the war, all of a sudden, it seem, seems to be coming true. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what they were, what I think the Reconstruction was about from the point of view of the uh, paramilitaries among the Southern whites was, okay, we're not going to go back to war to, to capture the whole country, but we're going to go back to war to capture our states. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, though there were federal troops in various numbers in Louisiana throughout the decade after the Civil War, mm-hmm. if I could be wrong about this, but my research showed that not a single one was ever killed or wounded mm-hmm. in combat with Southern par- white paramilitaries. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They knew that if they crossed that line, they would be back at war with the federal government. Mm-hmm. They were only interested in reconquering their state. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's, it's very well said. Um, we've really taken up a lot of your time, Chuck, and we, you know, I, I very much appreciate it. We've gone on for almost an hour now. I could go on for more, and you probably <laughs> could too. I don't know if the listeners can or not. Um, let me ask you the, uh, our traditional final question, and that is, um, what are you at work on now? Well, most of my time I'm spending working on edi- at writing editorials here at the Post. Um, I have plans to go to uh, Berlin next spring to work on another book, which is going to be a short one about. You'll think I have this sort of lugubrious mind, uh, death and destruction. I'm going to write a, a book about capital punishment. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, and um, but that's that's a few months uh, into the future. Is that going to be a historical book, or is it going to be? It's more much more contemporary I see. and okay. much less. Uh, Narrative. It's going to well, be a, sort of a short policy book, actually. I see. Well, we look forward to um, seeing that in print when it comes out. And, and I just would like to thank you again for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and congratulating you on, on what's really a terrific book. Well, thank you, Marshall. I appreciate it's, it very much. It's absolutely my pleasure. Take care now. All right, bye. All right, bye-bye. You've been listening to an interview with Chuck Lane, the author of The Day Freedom Died, The Colfax Massacre, The Supreme Court, and The Betrayal of Reconstruction. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. Talk to you next week. Thank you.